Well, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We are in a series in the Gospel of Mark where we're working through uh, the second half of the Gospel of Mark in a series called Servant King. And uh, we're going to be looking today at a story that you're probably familiar with, but maybe, maybe it's a story that you've never really thought about its relevance uh, for us today. And uh, let me just kind of set it up this way. You know, there, there are certain places in the world that you've been that you will never forget having been there. You know, because of what you saw there, because of what you experienced there, there's just certain places in the world that you just, you, you just are unforgettable to you. Like, for example, uh, I will never forget the classroom on the campus of Asbury University that I was when I first laid eyes on my wife, Luann. Uh, I will never forget that classroom. I don't remember a thing that I learned in class that day, but I remember the awe that, that uh, came over me when I saw her and remember thinking to myself, I was blind, but now I see. Praise be to God. Um, and then I'll never forget the place where my, both of my boys were born, uh, kind of simple place. We, most of us pass it every single day, Community South Hospital, but I, I just remember being in awe as God brought these guys into the world and uh, blessed me with them. And then I'll never forget a, a, a retreat center outside of Panama City, Florida, where God moved so clearly and sovereignly in my life, changed my life uh, as a high schooler, and um, I, I just, I'll never forget it. It was, it was almost like yesterday. And I would imagine you have your list of places as well, list of places that you just will never forget because of what you've experienced there. And so uh, there are just certain places that we don't forget because God meets us. God met us in those places. And maybe, maybe in, even in our lowest point. And, uh, and so that would certainly be true for the guys that we're going to read about today. Peter, James, and John. And the story of the transfiguration of Jesus. And uh, this event was so significant in uh, the lives of Peter, James, and John. that They wrote about it in the New Testament. They actually mentioned it uh, in, the, in the scripture. And so I just want to show you. Uh, one example of this, Peter in his second letter, in the first chapter, he's writing and he's kind of anticipating some naysayers, you know, some skeptics. He, he's, he's just kind of anticipating that. And I want you to notice what Peter says in, in, in his uh, first chapter of his second letter. He said, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Peter says, we ourselves heard this very vo voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So what Peter is talking about there is he's, what he's saying is this, look, the message that we shared with you, the message that we preached to you, we didn't, we didn't present to you some myth that we, we came up with, some, some myth that we created. No, we saw it with our own eyes. We heard it with our own ears. We were eyewitnesses of his glory. And what he's talking about is what happened in the story that we're going to look at today. So I want us to to take a minute today and, and, and really look at the story of the transfiguration of Jesus because it was such a definitive moment in the lives of the disciples. And the reason why is because Jesus gave them a glimpse into his glory. He really kind of pulled back 
the curtain and they could see, they could see Jesus for who he really is. And I think that's what could happen today as God, through his Holy Spirit, opens our hearts and our minds. Now, if you were with us last Sunday, we looked at Peter's confession of Jesus. These, sto- these two stories really do go together. And uh, you remember Jesus pressed the disciples and he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter responded by saying, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the king of all kings. You're the king who's come to finally make all things right. And if you remember what Jesus kind of said back to them is he basically said, you're right when you say I'm the king, but I'm not the king that you expect. I'm the king, I'm not going to Jerusalem to take over the throne. I'm going to Jerusalem to take up the cross. And the Son of Man must, must be rejected, and he must suffer, and he must die. And so the disciples really struggled with this. They're like, what in the world is he saying? Is he out of his mind? They just could not wrap their mind around how the Messiah would come and rescue Israel. But in the same, in the same breath, die and, and suffer and be rejected. And so what Jesus does is he speaks to that struggle. He reveals his grace in the midst of that struggle by doing something absolutely remarkable. So we are in Mark chapter nine. We're gonna read verses two through 10 and I'm gonna ask you if you're willing and able, would you stand together because God has spoken to us today. Let's, let's read this. And so Mark records this. He says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah For he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came from the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what was this rising from the dead what this rising from the dead might mean the grass withers and the flowers fade but not the word of God it lasts forever you may be seated so Jesus takes Peter James and John up the mountain and this is probably Mount Hermon and uh, you can see Mount Hermon from northern Israel because uh, it's a huge mountain. It's, it's uh, north, kind of northeast of Caesarea Philippi, where the disciples had been, been doing some ministry. And uh, what Jesus does is he, he really, like I said, you know, pulls back the veil and uh, lets Peter, James, and John see Jesus for who he really is. And I think what we see here is that Jesus gives us a glimpse into his glory. And I think first and foremost, we see this glimpse of the glory of the king. That's what we see. We, we see a glimpse into the glory of the king. So, so when you think about it, 
this story that we just read is a revelation of Jesus, the Son of God. And, and what we see, I think, very practically is that Jesus is not a man, you know, of flesh. He is, he is God in the flesh. So he's not just a man, but he is the God-man. He is God in the flesh. And, and so Jesus shows us he, he's, he's, no ordinary, he's no ordinary king. And uh, it reminds me of what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 2, 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So what he's talking about, what Paul is trying to convey to us there, is that the fullness of God dwelt in the man Jesus. And what this is referring to is what theologians kind of, they, they use this big term called the hypostatic union of Christ. And, and, and really what it means is it means that Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man at the same time. Now the math doesn't really add up because the math goes like this. He's 100% God, but he's also 100% man. He's not 50% God and 50% man. He is fully man and fully, fully God. And that's what Jesus is trying to reveal. That's the glory that he reveals to them. So let's look at verse two and let's just kind of pick up the story right there. So after six days, Mark tells us, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up the mountain by themselves. And Mark tells us that he was transfigured before them. That word transfigured is in Greek the word metamorphosis. Like a butterfly coming out of a cocoon. There's been a change. And, and something has happened to Jesus. His glory is being manifested. And, it, and Mark tells us he, he's trying to put human words around something that we've never really seen before. And this is the best that he can do to describe it. And so he says his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And so he's talking about the, the whiteness of Jesus' clothes. That he's, he's radiant. He's intensely, intensely white. And uh, so then you have to ask, well, what's the, what's the significance of Jesus being radiant white? I, I, think, I think what Mark is really describing here is the holiness of God, the purity of God, the holiness, the goodness of God. And uh, he makes this comment that he was so white, he was whiter than, than anyone could bleach clothes. So he's just trying to find ways to help us see this and help us understand this. And, and I think what he's pointing us to is that Jesus is perfect goodness and that goodness was on display. That Jesus was perfect holiness and that holiness was on display. That there is, there is a holiness in Jesus, there's a goodness in Jesus that is unmatched uh, by, by any, any other person on the earth. I think that's what he's trying to describe. Now, the Gospel of Matthew describes this very event in uh, chapter 17 uh, verse 2. And I want to just kind of show it to you because Matthew gives us a little bit more information about what happens here. And this is how Matthew describes it. He was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Now I want you to notice that phrase or that, that word shone. In Greek that's the word lampo and it literally means to produce light. So what Mark is telling us is that Jesus' face was producing light, radiant light, white light, glorious light. 
It was actually producing it. Now, do you remember, do you, do you remember the story of Moses up on the mountain with God on, on Mount Sinai? You remember Moses is meeting one-on-one with God and God's revealing himself uh, to Moses. And part of what God does is he gives Moses the law. He gives them He gives Moses the Ten Commandments to give to the people and God reveals to them that reveals to Moses he wants, you know, his will is to lead him, lead the people into the promised land. So he's he's revealing all of that. And so so Moses is worshiping God on the mountain and he's receiving this instruction from God. And and Moses makes this incredible request. He says, Let let me see, let you know, show me your glory. Let me see your face. That's a pretty awesome request. Let me see your face. And, and, so, and so God says uh, something to Moses that's really interesting. He says, uh, Moses, I can't show you my face because if you saw my face, you would die. And the reason why is because, because you know, people are sinful and God is holy. And so his holiness is so real. It's so brilliant. It can't be in the, it can't be in the presence of sin. And, uh, and so, you know, God says to Moses, if you saw my face, you will die. But what God does is shows him grace and hides Moses in the cleft of the rock. You guys remember this? And so he's kind of hiding in a crack of a rock. And then God walks by him. God path literally passes by him. And Moses is able to see and these words fall short, but these are the words, was able to see the back of God. And, uh, and he's just blown away at this. And uh, it's just an act of God's grace and mercy to Moses. And, and so Moses in, is encountering the glory of God, interestingly enough, on a mountain. And, and the glory of God is so intense. Moses is coming down out of the mountain and his face is glowing. And it was glowing so brilliantly that when the people down below the mountain saw Moses coming down the mountain, they were scared. And they, they had to put a veil over Moses' head because the glory of God was being reflected so brilliantly. Now, now just think about this. Matthew tells us that, that Jesus' face shone like the sun that it produced light like the sun and and what mark is telling us is this moses was on the mountain and he reflected the light just like the moon reflects the light of the sun that the moon doesn't produce light it just simply reflects the light of the sun and in the same way, Jesus is on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is not reflecting light. He's producing it. He's not reflecting glory. He is producing glory. And so there is the glory of God emanating right, right from the person of Jesus. And this is why John, in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. That is really interesting. And so John's saying we were eyewitnesses of his glory. And so the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, 
they got to see what Moses longed to see and couldn't see. They got to see what Moses wanted to see, but God told Moses no. The disciples got to see what the prophets longed to see, but God told them no. I mean, think about that. That through the person of Jesus, Peter, James, and John literally got to see the face of God. And amazingly, they didn't die. And the glory of God was shown to them in such a powerful way. Now, how does this really relate to what we're going through today? Because I, I know some of you are sitting back and you're thinking, Scott, that's great. I'm, I'm so happy for Peter and James and John, but man, I got to... I got to get through the week here, you, you know what I mean? And, uh, and so I think, I think that's a really good question. And I think if you, you know, just kind of go with me on this. I, I think it relates very closely to our daily life. You know why? Because I think the longing of every human being is to see the face of God. I think, it, I think we do. I think it's our deepest, strongest longing. You know, God didn't make us content with the merely human. We have a longing for the divine. That, that's why Solomon in Ecclesiastes 3.11, he, he writes this. He says he's made everything beautiful in its time. He has also put eternity into man's heart. Now think about that for a minute. Solomon, Solomon is writing this probably 3,000 years ago and he makes an observation about humanity and his observation about humanity is God has put eternity in his heart or in her heart. And what it shows is that our deepest longing is for the infinite. That our deepest longing is for the eternal. That the... the the strongest yearning of our heart is to, is to see the face of God and to know the embrace of God. That, that, is, that is the deepest longing of our heart, that we, that we want to see God. We, we want to know his embrace. We want to know his love. We want to feel his, his approval over our lives. That's the deepest longing of our heart. And I would say that this encounter between God and Moses really really is significant because it reveals the greatest conundrum that humanity has ever faced. And it's this, that just like Moses, we want to see God's face. We want to be close to God. We want to know him. We want to know his love, right? That's what we were made for. That's why we were born. That's why we were living. Because, because God created us to reveal his love to us. It's the deepest longing of our heart. To know the love of the King of Kings. To, to know the affirmation of our Heavenly Father. But because of sin, we can't have it. Because of sin, we have lost it. See, there was a time in the garden when we had it, right? We, we had this closeness with God pre-fall. Just like Adam and Eve, right? They, they walked with God. They talked with God. They knew God. They they. They fellowship with God every, every single day. They saw the face of God. They knew the embrace of God. But sin entered the world. And it ruptured this face-to-face -face relationship 
with our creator. It was, it was ripped from us. It was, it was taken away from us. And so what sin does is it creates this chasm between us and God. It creates this division between a sinful people and a holy God. And so, so the result of this is that we, we distrust him. And, we, and we, we're deceived even by, by the sinfulness of the world and our own flesh. We're, we're deceived in thinking we can be God. And so it creates this, this huge chasm between us. And so, so the moment that, that this relationship was ripped from us, it also created a void in our lives. And have you ever noticed, you know, that, that there's a longing within you that just never goes away? Have you, have you, have you ever noticed that longing? Have you, have you ever just taken five minutes to kind of reflect on, you know, that we have this awareness that there's something missing in our lives. And, and so what happens is there's this emptiness. And so we, we try to fill it with recreation and reputation and riches and romance. And we, we try to fill it with all of these things. But there's this, there's this aching void within us that just can't seem to be filled. And uh, we fill it over and over again. And, and and part of this, you know, the deceitfulness of sin is that it just tricks us over and over and over again, thinking that we can fill the void with so many things in the world. Have, have you ever noticed, have you ever wondered this? Like, why do we crave the approval of people so much? I mean, have y'all ever thought about that? I am a recovering people pleaser, I've been clean two days. Uh, <laughs> where does that come from? That we have this thirst to be applauded by others, to be approved of by others. Is that some product of evolution? You think that's where it comes from? You know what I think? I think it's, it's a reflection of the longing that we have for God. We're trying to fill the void with the next best thing. That's what I think it is. And we don't realize it because we're so time bound. We're so bound by sin. And what, what it does is it blocks our awareness of the greatest yearning in our heart. And that is to be face to face with God. We, we don't realize how broken the world really is. We don't realize how broken we really are and what we really, really want. It's really difficult to kind of put this into words, but my, one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, does a really good job in a sermon that he wrote called The Weight of Glory, and I want to, I want to share a quote from that and uh, if you're ADD, you need to really dial into this, okay? Um, because this is really good. So just, just kind of focus in on it right now. He says, he says this, there's a sense that in, the uni in this universe, we are treated as strangers. We all have the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality. That is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory in the sense described becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. For glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and a welcome into the heart of things. 
the door on which we've been knocking all of our lives will open at last. Now what, what Lewis is saying is he's really speaking to this desire that if we, that if we just could take a, f- a few minutes and just reflect on our lives and our motivations and what we, what we really want, we would see that there's, there's something that we want that this world can't give us. But what the scripture promises is that one day that the door on which we've been knocking will be, be opened at last. That we shall see the face of God uh, face to face. And, um, and it's all through Jesus Christ. You know, British author Julian Barnes says it this way, and I love, I love the honesty of this. He says, you know what? I don't believe in God, but I sure miss him. I sure miss him. And he's being honest. Like he's acknowledging, you know what? I don't believe in God, but man, I have a longing for him. And I think that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty transparent. So, so, let, so let's just kind of just talk a minute about how, where you would go with this. You know, I, I think practically what this means is we need to create space in our lives daily for the presence of God. I, I think it's our greatest desire. And we get so busy and we get so distracted with, with other things. We need time daily, church, to reverence God, to worship him, to praise him. We need that time every day. We, we need that time to be in his presence, worshiping him and responding to him, surrendering our lives to him. We, we need time every day where we're in his presence and we're able to request of him what we need. We need that. You, you can't live without that. That's your deepest longing. And so if you've never done that before, you know, make it your goal to spend I don't know, 10 minutes a day, just every day this week, just, just 10 minutes where you're away from the kids, you're, you, you know, you're, you're, you're not driving, you're just focusing on the scripture and you're focusing on who God is and you're reverencing him and you're praising him. And, and, then, and then you respond to what you read in the scripture. You respond and worship and surrender and then you're able to request of him. Church, you need that in your life. That's your purpose in life. It's what you were made for, to bask in his love, to bask in his glory so that he can reveal his glory to you. That's what he's doing with Peter, James, and John. And so what happens is you experience life, you experience joy, you experience peace because it's what your heart was made for. Secondly, what Jesus reveals is not just the glory of the king, but the grace of the kingdom. That's what Jesus is showing these guys, the grace of the kingdom. See, the truth is we're sinful and we can't stand in the presence of God. We can't see him face to face. But Peter, James, and John did. How? How is that even possible? Well, it's because of what Jesus would later do. It's because of what Jesus did for us. And let me show this to you in verse 4 because this is really interesting. And so part of this transfiguration story, Mark tells us, that there appeared with them. So you got Peter, James, and John, and Jesus. And then, and then he tells us there appeared with them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. 
Now this, this, this to me is fascinating. Like, like, why is Moses and Elijah in this story? And how, how did the disciples like recognize them? That, were they wearing name tags? Like, hello, my name is Elijah. And, hello, my name is Moses. You know, how did they even recognize that? They just knew. They just knew right off. So what's the significance of this? I, I think it's very significant. You know, when you think about Moses, he's the ultimate lawgiver. So he gives, he gives the Ten Commandments. He gives the law to the people of God, to the people of Israel. The rules, the regulations, the feast, and the sacrifices. He is the one who instructs them. He is the one who, who puts that into God's covenant people. So he is the ultimate lawgiver. And basically, that it's, it's through the giving of the law that they can relate to God, that they can connect with God, albeit very limited. But then Elijah is different from Moses because Elijah was a prophet. He's the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. You need to read the stories of Elijah. They're unbelievable in his ministry. And so the the purpose of the prophets, they were to call the people back to faith in God. They were to call, they had a very difficult job. They were to call the people back into obedience to God. And so the people didn't always like what they were preaching because they were spot on. And they called them out. And sometimes the prophets were killed. Sometimes they were stoned. Sometimes they were just tortured. And, um, and so what you have here is you have standing next to Jesus. You have Elijah, the greatest prophet, the ultimate prophet. And you have Moses, the greatest lawgiver, the ultimate lawgiver. And so the purpose of the law and the prophets was thought to be the way that we would encounter God. The way that we would experience God, but there was one problem. The law and the prophets lacked the power for the people to actually obey. And if you read through the Old Testament, what you find is the people of God struggled and struggled and struggled. They just simply couldn't get there. They couldn't walk in obedience. And, uh, and the reason why is because the law is powerless to help us obey it. The prophets were powerless to help us obey even as they they called and so really the purpose of the law and the prophets was to point to the one who would do it for us and his name is Jesus the Messiah and so what would happen as Peter is looking at all this Jesus is being transfigured Moses on his right you know Elijah on his left and then all of a sudden Moses and Elijah disappear and Mark tells us it's just Jesus And then we fast forward to the book of Acts, chapter 4, where Peter says this. It's just fascinating. He says this, there is salvation in no one else. Acts 4, 12. Not in Moses, not in Elijah. Salvation is in, in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And what Peter is proclaiming and preaching is that salvation is in no one else. Salvation is nowhere else. Salvation is found in nothing else other than Jesus Christ. And so that's why Jesus was left standing there radiating before the disciples for them to understand it's not the law that we're saved. It's not through the prophets that we're saved. It's through Jesus that we are saved. See, there are a lot of people And this is my observation, but there's a lot of people in central Indiana that think God's going to save them because they're good people. They're really good people. And so God owes them. 
God owes them salvation. And the, the flawed assumption is that God requires goodness for us to get into heaven. And he doesn't require goodness. He requires perfection. And the reason why he requires perfection is if he lets imperfect people into a perfect place like heaven, guess what? Heaven's not going to be perfect anymore. And so really the purpose of the law and the prophets is to show us our need for a savior. To show us that if we've broken one commandment, we've broken them all. To show us that we can't obey God in our own strength and our own power. We need someone else's power and strength to do it. And that's exactly, that is exactly why Jesus came. And so that's why you see over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, the people struggling and failing, struggling and failing to obey God because they couldn't do it in their own strength. They would have to do it through Jesus, the Messiah. See, really, the gospel is this. We deserve death and judgment because of our sin. That's the bad news. But the good news is that God made a way. He made a way for us to come into God's presence and see the face of God. And that would be, that would be by grace through faith. I love how Paul says this in Ephesians 2.10. He says it so plainly, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. And what I know, church, is this, that everybody within the sound of my voice today, within, that, within this group of people, there's some of you, you've never taken this step. You're still trusting in your righteousness. You're still trusting in your goodness. You've never taken the step of putting your faith in Jesus you're trying to earn your way and God says you're just trusting in you you need to trust in me because salvation comes by grace through faith salvation is the gift of God and then that brings us to the last one the gain of a king and a kingdom what Jesus does on the mountain is he really gives them a, a glimpse into the gain of a king and a kingdom. Now, what do, I, what do I mean by that? Well, let me kind of set it up this way. If you notice verse 5, Peter's mouth gets a little bit ahead of his brain. Has that ever happened to you? You just like, you know, just blurt out something before you really think about it. That's exactly what's going on. And even Mark calls him out for this. He didn't know what to say. He was just scared to death, but it was a good kind of scared. And uh, it's just funny what he says here. Look at verse 5. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Like, it's good that we're here. I, I like this. And uh, he is in the presence of Jesus in his glory. And he says, this is good. Then notice what he says. Let's make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, question, why does Peter say this? This is, this is kind of interesting. Um, Peter, Peter is really remembering something that's a part of his Jewish heritage that he celebrated every single year. He's remembering that these tents that he is talking about are part of the Feast of the Tabernacles. So the Feast of Booths. So what they would do, uh, if you read through the Old Testament, you notice that there are a number of different feasts. God, God likes to party. Let me just tell you that. He really does. Because there, I mean, there's just a lot of partying in the Old Testament. So this was a week-long feast. And he called the people of Israel 
to celebrate this week-long feast to commemorate their redemption out of slavery in Egypt. So he wanted them to remember what God did for them by delivering them from the Egyptians and uh, pointing them back to the promised land. So every, you know, throughout the centuries of Jewish history, the Jewish people would celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles. And what they would do is they would go outside their homes and they would get sticks and canvas and they would build a little booth tent. And they would live in that booth tent for the entire week. And they would celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles. And they would use that to remind them and their families of what God did for them in delivering them from the Egyptians. And how God set them free and led them into the promised land. And uh, so it was a great celebration. So this is what Peter's remembering. And then also in Zechariah, there's a prophecy that on the day of the Lord... And in the Old Testament, when it talks about the day of the Lord, it's the day that God comes and sets up his kingdom on the earth. He vanquishes his enemies and the kingdom of Israel is established. It's the day of the Lord and, and uh, it's, it's at the end of time. And uh, so there's this prophecy in Zechariah about it. And what it says in Zechariah 14 is that Jews and Gentiles will both celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles. So Peter knows all this. So he's up on the mountain and he's eyeballing Elijah, Moses, and Jesus, and it's good. And he says, let's build three tents because he thinks this is the coming of the kingdom. That's what he thinks. Like, it's here. It's game on. Like, let's go. And, uh, and so Jesus would have to probably think to himself, slow down, Peter. There's one more thing we got to do first. You know what that is? He's got to go to the cross. And you see this in verse 7. Mark tells us, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is the, vo this is the voice of God directed to the disciples. This is not directed to Jesus. It's directed to the disciples. And the voice says, listen to my son. Listen to what he says. What did he just say? The son of man must suffer, be rejected, and die. That's what it, we just looked at last week. And, and so the point of this is the disciples had to understand if Jesus, if the kingdom was going to come, he was going to have to die. They were going to have to get this. That the road to glory goes through the valley of suffering. And that the king, the Messiah, would have to die. In other words, think about this. Death equals resurrection equals kingdom. See, death has to, pre has to precede resurrection and the resurrection has to precede the kingdom. And, and so that's what Jesus is trying to help them to see. He's trying to get them ready for what's going to happen later on in the gospel of Mark as the king gets ready to go to the cross. It, 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 it very much reminds me of what happened when Jesus was being tempted by Satan in the desert. You guys remember this? Satan takes him up on the mountains and he shows him all the kingdoms of the earth. And he says to Jesus, if you'll bow down and worship me, I will give you all of the kingdoms of the earth. Now, what was he tempting Jesus to do? He was really tempting Jesus to gain the kingdom and bypass the cross. 
That was the temptation. He's telling him, you can have the kingdom. You don't need to go to the cross. Just bow down and worship me. And what does Jesus say? He quotes scripture about worshiping God alone, and he tells Satan to get out of Dodge. And what he's telling him is, you know what? I'm going to die so that there can be a resurrection. And there's going to be a resurrection so that there can be a kingdom. And what Jesus does is he invites us to follow him on that very same path. He calls us to die to ourselves because in that death, there's a resurrection. And in that resurrection is a kingdom. And we gain a king and a kingdom. But we must die to ourselves. That's the, that's the road to discipleship. Laying down our efforts to try to be good in and of ourselves. Laying down our efforts to trust in our righteousness. Laying down our will and the insistence of our way. Dying to ourselves so that we can paradoxically experience a resurrection. See, you don't, you don't think that's how it works, but that's how the kingdom works. Like when we humble ourselves, we're raised up, we're exalted. When we die to ourselves, we live. When we, when we lay down our lives, we are resurrected. And in that, what we gain is we gain a relationship, the deepest yearning of our heart with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And then we get the kingdom thrown in because that's just how awesome our king is. So today, church, I, I just want to challenge you. Where are you today? Probably for most of you, you're, you're a Christian. You, you're, you've been born again. You've experienced the grace of God. But are you walking in that closeness? Have you let sin just kind of come between you and God? And what, and what Jesus calls us to do is, is confess and repent and let's get going. And maybe you're here today and you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Today is the day of salvation for you to do that. Today is the day for you to stop trusting in yourself and in your righteousness and to put your trust in the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who loved you so much, he went all the way to the cross for you and for me. Man, that's really good news. And so I want to encourage you to take that step today. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would just show us your glory. Lord, we long for the eternal. We, we long for the infinite. And I pray that you would give us the spiritual eyes to see, that you would give us soft hearts to know what we really long for. Lord, we know the world can't give it to us. The world is just infinitely too small for the desire that you've put in our heart. Our desires for you. It's not in pornography. It's not in money. It's not in reputation. It's not in position. It's not in anything that the world can give. What we long for is you. And so I thank you that you made a way that we could see you face to face, that we can come into your presence, that we can know your love, that we can know your embrace. 
And God, I ask that through your spirit, you would reveal it to us today. God, I ask that you would just give us grace to move in faith to renew our walk with you if we need to be renewed and recommitted or to come across that line that says, by the grace of God, I'm a child of God. So would you do that today? We thank you and praise you and all of God's people said,